I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. What comes to your mind when you think of prison? If you don't have anyone in your life who's incarcerated, your point of reference might be shows like Orange is the New Black, Lockup, or maybe Beyond Scared Straight. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today on Podcast Playlist, we're going to hear from a show that looks at what life is really like inside a prison with the host of Ear Hustle. Ear Hustle got its start by documenting life inside California's San Quentin State Prison. It's hosted by Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods. Nigel is a visual artist and a university professor who got involved with San Quentin as a volunteer. Meanwhile, Erlon is a former inmate at San Quentin who was sentenced to 31 years to life for attempted second-degree robbery. He began hosting the show as an inmate, but in November of 2018, his sentence was commuted after 21 years. He now co-hosts the podcast from the outside. Ear Hustle has entered their latest season, and Nigel and Erlon are here to share a few of their favorite podcasts. I'm thrilled that they're on the show, one of my favorite all-time podcasts, and they're joining me now from their studio in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to start with you, Erlon. Can you please explain to us what Ear Hustle means? The definition for us of Ear Hustle or I believe the definition of ear hustle period is to eavesdrop into other people's conversations, you know, or to listen to something that maybe you not, you weren't supposed to be listening to, but you did for some reason. It also means being a little nosy. So that's the definition of ear hustle is just listening in on conversation, being a fly on the wall. And your podcast is really the first of its kind and it goes all the way back to 2017. Where did the idea for this show come from? Well, I started volunteering inside San Quentin in 2011, uh, teaching history of photography class. And I got really interested in life inside prison and the stories of, of people in prison. And so after I taught for a few semesters, I found my way down to the media lab. San Quentin has a media lab. Um, and I was working with a group of guys to do a documentary about life inside prison. And at first we thought we would do film. But it was way too hard, so we moved to the idea of doing audio. And when we started, really the idea was to tell the everyday life stories of prison, not stories about crime, but just kind of the minutia of life that makes life interesting. And so we started a radio program, and that's how I met Erlon. He was working down in the media lab, and we got to know each other over, what, like a three- or four-year period? Pretty much, yeah. From at least 2012 to about 2015. Yeah. And then the radio project started to have some issues. And so I proposed to Erlon that we break away and start a podcast. And he agreed. And that's what we did. When you think back to when that all started, did you both think that you'd be creative partners all these years later? Yep. <laughs> kind of. Nah. I mean, it, 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 it's, you, you don't see that far ahead, like that far, you know, 
you see, oh, this is, we're doing something cool. You know, you see that. Okay, well, I did see it because I remember Ooh. the thing is when you find a creative partner that you can work really well with, you're foolish if you don't figure out how to make it last. Mm. And when we were getting into doing the stories, I found it so exhilarating and challenging. I remember saying to myself, um, you know, like I found the work I want to do with the second part of my life. And that work included telling the stories in prison and it included working with Erlon. I, you know, I mean, that was the feeling. I'm not sure if I was like, oh, when I'm 70, I'll still be doing this. I'm not sure that was clear in my head, mm-hmm. but. Um, mm-hmm. 70, huh? <laughs> but I made it to 60 and we're still doing it. <laughs> yeah, actually, when we all started, we we, we sung Nigel of, uh, uh, what birthday was Happy that? Happy 50th birthday. Happy 50th birthday, mm-hmm. like inside San Quentin, we. We sung, but we was doing the radio stories yeah. then, you know. Um, but we were already working together. So, yeah, now, you know. You... Now it's got to see me 60. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm wondering, how do you decide what to center each episode around? Because you cover so much ground mm-hmm. in the show. It's always something new. So how do you make those decisions? One thing we knew from the start, and I kind of touched on this earlier, is we were very clear that we were not doing stories about crime. We weren't going to do sensationalized stories. We weren't going to do stories about people who said they were innocent, you know, whatever. We were going to do stories about everyday life in prison. So that, you know, that in some ways narrowed what we were talking about, but it also opened it up to so many topics. The only time we really talk about people crimes is when it's pretty much germane to the story. You know, that's when we mm. we will bring it up or something, some part of it. Um, but usually... Towards the end of each season, we will all sit down and have a meeting of the minds, you know, where we'll throw ideas at a whiteboard and come up with different scenarios to these stories and figure out which ones we're going to use. Whoever has the strongest pitch for their story, we usually go with that. Yeah, and so we have to find stories we haven't told before. Um, We've got to push the boundaries of how we're telling stories. And we also have to find people who are really good storytellers because this is the problem. You can have a great idea for a story, but if the person is not a good storyteller or they they already know what they want to say, that's going to kill the story. So the person who carries the story has to be able to hold up their part. Um, But I remember when we we won a, a podcast contest. That's how we started producing our stories outside of prison. And I remember one of the interviews for the contest, they said, well, aren't you going to run out of stories just telling stories in prison? I was like, no, there are endless stories in prison. Endless. And there's probably like a there's probably like a hundred stories that we won't tell. Yeah. You know, based on, you know, our ethics. Yeah. You know, but there's but a thousand. There are. There's a there's tell. a story in every cell in every prison. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about you. You've mentioned your ethics and, and some of the things that you won't talk about. It feels like this show is very rooted in empathy. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Could you tell me about that approach and how you came to the decision to tell these stories in the ways that you do? That's a good question. I mean, because a lot of our stories do end in some type of empathy type or people probably find some empathy and inside them they didn't know they had, you know. And I think it's just from sitting individuals down and asking like serious questions or, you know, just talking to individuals and letting individuals know that you hear them. And I think it's it's kind of who we are. I mean, we're not interested in gotcha stories. Right. We're also not interested in overtly tearing the prison system down. I mean, of course, we want the prison system to change, but that's not the overt 
motive. The motive is to get people to think differently about right. who's in prison and how prisons can change. And how do you do that? You do that through making people distinct individuals and not talking about policy, not talking about numbers, not just saying what's wrong, but giving people the opportunity to see that from themselves through hearing complicated stories of people they could relate to and see themselves in. And people that they never thought they could relate to. Exactly. You know, like they never thought they even could think about having empathy for people in prison or whatever. But I think through the storytelling process, through getting to know people outside of what their commitment offense is, whatever, I think that's what allows individuals to really get drawn in. When you began working on this show, Erlon, you were still in prison. Yes. So what has working on the show been like post-incarceration? Well, I can say it has been a nonstop job. It's a lot of work, you know. It, It hasn't, I don't think it has gotten easier since we started at all. Like, you would think once you understand the formula, the stories, you know, we get easier. But now nah, they get harder because you got to think of something different. You think of new twists, think of new ways. So I think, um, you know, being on it has, you know, given me uh, great insight to not only storytelling, but engineering, sound designing, you know, music production, all kind of stuff. So it is, it is blossomed beyond, you know, my wildest dreams. It's like I think our first season, the, the theme was it's the reality is bigger than a dream, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. And you know, one thing that's really changed since Erlon's gotten out is that we've been able to expand the program. When he was inside, it was all San Quentin-centric because that's where he was. That's where our home base was. And when he got out, that allowed us to t- together to be able to start traveling to other prisons, working in women's prisons, traveling to prisons across California, going to Europe to do stories. And that just wasn't going to happen when he was inside because there was no way I was going to do that by myself. We needed to do it together. You couldn't get me out on a furlough or nothing? <laughs> we tried. <laughs> and in some ways, that's made what we do harder. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're traveling a lot more. We're trying to, in, you know, embed like we did in San Quentin. So we have to figure out how to grow and change and keep it challenging and fresh and true to our vision. Going out now and going to these other prisons and working together in person, I'm just wondering, Nigel, like when you think back to when Erlon first got out, how did that change things for you? And what was it like first getting to interact with him? Yeah, I mean, I had some nervousness about it because when Erlon got out, I didn't know if he was going to still want to do this work. I mean, he'd been in prison for 20 21 years. Something years. Something, yeah, 20 something years. And I thought, well, maybe he's just going to want to get as far away from everything prison as he could. And so I wanted to give him the space to make that decision without pressuring him. But I'm sure it was pretty clear to him that I hoped we would still be partners. And luckily, he wanted to keep doing it. So that was the first thing. And then when he was inside, I spent I mean, no joke, 40 plus hours a week in there working together. And it was like a a home base for us. And when he got out, of course, I wanted him to get out. But I was also sad because the the working relationship we had developed, the way we worked together, the intensity of it wasn't going to be that way anymore. I mean, I, I knew that. And so I had to get used to going in there without him. But the benefit there were so many benefits, obviously, the biggest one being he was out of prison. But the other things that came our way when he got out, the traveling together, writing a book together, um, enlarging our team, all of that was so magnificent. 
And then when he got out, it was like he'd always been out. It was weird. I mean, you know, like we got to hug for the first time. We got to eat a meal together off of each other's plate for the first time. And then it was just like, okay, let's go. Let's go. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and, and that probably was, you know, a concern of Nigel, whether I wanted to get away from the whole prison life, the whole incarcerated, you know, stories and just going to just regular life, whatever that may be, you know, with, with that in my rearview mirror. But, you know, I think sometimes a gift get dropped on you and that gift be bigger than you, you know, the whole existence of it be bigger than you. So, you know, I just get in line and follow through and continue to, to utilize my role to inspire other individuals that's incarcerated to, you know, just do better. You mentioned early on that you got your start at San Quentin, the show, but in your recent seasons, you've also spent time at other institutions, specifically the California Institution for Women. What differences did you notice between the men's and women's experiences in prison? There's so many differences. Starters, you know, I don't think the women prisons are as racially segregated as the men prisons. Hmm. The women seem to all, you know, get along. You know, there's no there's no gang type of divides in most of the prisons that we've been in thus far. I think the biggest things for me, and I can say for us, was seeing, you know, our grandmothers and elderly aunties in prison, you know, like mm. for me, that never even crossed my mind, you know, that my grandmama that's eighty some years old, I'm just speaking, would be in prison. You know what I'm saying? Would be sitting there, you know, like just there in a walker, you know, that kind of, I was used to seeing old men, of course, you know, but to see older women, that was, that was deep. The scene, it's very different. Seeing the older women in prison, Erlon and I share that has been devastating. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in prison and I'm, I'm used to it in many ways. I've, I go in, I feel invigorated. We tell our stories and we're working really hard. Both of us feel when we leave the women's prison just <laughs> depleted. It just yeah. is, I find it very emotionally difficult to see women and particularly older women in prison. And I'm tr- I'm still struggling trying to figure out why is it harder for me to see women in prison than it is to see men. You know, it's not great to be a man in prison either, but there is something about seeing, yeah, your aunties and your grandmas mm-hmm. in prison that just slays you. And I think a- mm-hmm. another thing is too is, you know, sometimes you see people like, Everybody is not a criminal at all. Everybody is not a criminal. Sometimes people make bad decisions, right? And just, I could, I could say this, we seen a person yesterday, a young person, like in their 20s, you know, and I think this is something rampant that a lot of people in their 20s, especially females, are going to jail for like DUI homicides, you know, and these are people that's never been in the criminal system, never thought they'd ever be in jail. They make one bad decision and they got a life sentence. And I, I guess, you know, to see that, I, the maybe the resilience of people yeah. that even though this wasn't your life, you was thrown in this jungle, you have to adjust, you know. So yeah. I think a lot of that really get to you because you look, you think your little sisters, you think of, you know, know, like, like, how would I feel if my daughter made this bad decision that actually hurt someone, which I, you know, but she has to go in and sit in the highest prisons because of, 
you know, a bad, yeah, so it, it kind of, it kind of throws me. But we have to really, I mean, Erlon and I have to really examine our feelings. Why is it harder to see women in prison? I don't have a good answer for you, but we both have the same reaction that it's, that it's tough. And I, I think the other thing is, you know, you think about, I mean, a lot of this is sexist, but like, you know, the moms separated mm-hmm. from their children is really hard. Um I don't think the women's prisons get the same kind of advantages that the men's prisons get, at least the ones we've been to. They don't have as many volunteer programs. And then you go to the visiting rooms. This is the oh, thing the that visiting room, totally different. If you go to a visiting room, at least at San Quentin, it is full of people. They're full so crowded, full of women. Um, mm-hmm. You go to a visiting room at the women's prison, it's not many people, or it's like somebody's mom bringing all their kids in to visit their mother who's in prison, you know, like a grandmother. It's not, or a, it's not a lot of male figures Yeah, there. not a lot of male figures. Right. Um, either they could be co-defendants yeah. or they can just not come to support. Yeah. I, I think the support is different for the for the genders, I think. I would say men get way more support from women than women get from men when they're in the same situation. Yeah. Right. That's that's fascinating. We're going to hear a clip from your latest season from an episode about older women inmates. And in it, you speak to a woman named Lainey. She was 41 when she was incarcerated. She's 76 now and serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Let's take a listen. And I'm I'm ready for the hereafter. You are? Yes. Wait, how's that? Yes. Well, I believe I'm going to heaven, you know. Uh, I believe in heaven. I believe that I don't have a, a real close personal relationship with my grandchildren because my son was raised coming to prison to see mom. He was only six at the time. And he has decided he doesn't want his children to know that I'm in prison. And I have to respect that. You know, my son and I talk a couple of times a week, um, and I get tons and tons of pictures and videos and everything of the kids. But, you know, we tiptoe around it. Uh, and that's, uh, it's heartbreaking. My daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law is a school teacher, and she's wonderful. Um, but she was trying to get him to go to a funeral one day. And he, he, who's usually very accommodating and kind, said, I'm not going to any funerals. I'm, I live with the death, with the death that never ends, meaning I, I can't take anymore. <laughs> you know, he's mm-hmm. very emotional. And so I, I think, you know, once I'm gone, I'm gone, and he don't have to continue living the death that never ends. Mm-hmm. My mom's gone and she can't come home. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's heavy. Yeah. It's heavy. Aging in prison and not, you know, not just dealing with it myself, but trying to help others to yeah. deal with it. My family, my especially my child. Yeah. The heartache never ends. You accept it, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. Yeah. What are some of the most loneliest times in prison? Oh, wow. (sighs) Truthfully, it's all lonely. It's all lonely. Every day, every day, I wake up and I look at their pictures because they're all over my bed. You know, and you just miss them. You wish just for one time I could just hug them. I saw my grandson when he was first born. They brought him. 
Um, so I have seen him, but he was five by the time my granddaughter was born. And my granddaughter's named after me, so that's something wonderful. That says so much that they named their daughter after you. Yes. I told you, they're wonderful, yeah. and if my son could figure a way, he would have them here. Yeah. It, I think at this point it hurts him. Uh, he hasn't come to terms with it like I am, but he's 41. He's the age I was when I came to prison, and, you know, I'm 76, so yeah. I've learned how to cope with life's disappointments. In 35 years, how many people in your family have you lost? Everybody. Everybody but my son. Everybody. My mom. Uh, I, I never really had a relationship with my dad. That's why I said what I did about him. <laughs> uh, but my, my mom, my, my older brother, um, you know, all of my aunts and uncles and grandparents, everybody. And everybody was alive when I came to prison. Back to the Alzheimer. When, when you, it's very upsetting to see anybody, mm -hmm. if you're in prison or not, starting to deal with that. And, and I think you don't want to admit that it's happening to people that you know. You know what I mean? Like you, yes. you try to find excuses yeah. like, oh, it's this, exactly. they're tired, blah, blah, blah. Um, when you start to see that happening to somebody in here, like how, what's the reaction to it? It's a very scary disease, and that's why I'm watching The Notebook. I wasn't watching the love story. I'm looking to see how they're portraying what's going on here between the husband and the wife and how he's dealing with her. It's really, I can tell you, it's heartbreaking, and I've seen it happen to a few people. You try to keep up with what happens to them, but you can't. If I can engage them and I can keep them in the here and now, I know that's good because that's what I was told to do as my mother. You know, act like everything's normal. Invite them to play a game of Skippo. There, there's things that you can do to try to keep their mind stimulated. Mm -hmm. I, I'm scared to death that, that that's what's going to happen to me, to tell you the truth, because it's what happened to everybody in my mother's family. So I got to call every day and interact with her, and uh, at the end they said that just hearing my voice, that you could tell that something in there clicked, that you know she couldn't talk back to me. By then, she'd forgotten how to hold the telephone, you know, and the nurses had to do these things for her. That may be why God gave me that experience, is to use it for people that are not going to get that, you know, and also to talk myself down off that ledge. So when you were here and you couldn't be there for your mother, how was that? Heartbreaking. The guilt, the guilt, the shame, all of that, it kills you because I was supposed to be there. I'm her daughter. It's just, it's, uh, it's never-ending. There's not a day goes by I still don't think about my mother and the fact that she died without me there. Not a day, you know, and that I'm going to do the same thing to my son. It's, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. If I didn't have a child, I'd just go to death row and get it over with, because this is horrible. This is worse than dying. From PRX and Radiotopia, that was Ear Hustle. It's produced by Nigel Poor, 
Erlon Woods, Bruce Wallace, Amy Standen, and Rashawn New York Thomas. Full disclosure, I cried when I heard that um, that interview. It was really moving. And I really identified when you talked about, you know, why when you hear an older woman talk, there was something more evocative Mm -hmm. for me about about that. I know for many people, their idea of what a prisoner looks like is not someone like their own grandmother. I'm just wondering, what did you learn from your time at the senior center? Well, um, Leah, I have to say, when you, I knew you were going to play this clip, and I was like to myself, please don't cry. Please don't cry. Because I find it very emotional, too. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't just me. No. Yeah. Even though I mean, I've heard it a hundred times. You know, I was mm-hmm. there for the interview. I've been editing it. It's still just, it's a gut punch. Um, my takeaway was I felt good about seeing the way the older women supported themselves and that they created this senior center where they could be together and deal with the specific issues of aging in prison. Every time I left, I part of my heart stayed there. It's interesting when you start just tapping into a lot of the older population and some of them some of them have been there fifty years. Yeah. Elderly, frail, just getting by and you look at it like, okay, I understand certain things, but it comes a time when, you know, these these women to me don't seem like they're going to get out and commit another crime. Most of them, it's the only crime they probably committed in their life. And some of them may be real serious, you know, especially like if you get a life without the possibility sentence, you know, of course there's a murder involved or some type of kidnapping. But yeah. I think after a specific time, like, you know, 15, 20 years, they need to start, you know, reconsidering who do we have in custody that's just, ling- you know, languishing away. These women are bad health, yeah. um, all kind of ailments. It's a trip. Yeah. And, and so, I, I, you know, there are probably people listening to this and say, well, you know, those people are in prison for a reason. You know, why why should I care about their stories? What do you say to those people? What do you say about that? It's a, it's a lot to say. I mean, I mean, what is the punishment? Is I mean, that's the question I think sometimes. What is the punishment? Is the punishment for rehabilitation or is it just crime and punishment and that's it, you know? But I think once you have individuals that understand their causative factors, understand, you know, why they got themselves in that position and can basically talk about it without hesitation, I think those are the individuals that should be given a, a second chance. And also you got you got like say for instance other countries you know they have like maximum sentences of like 21 years no matter what the situation is so when it comes to putting time on someone's life that's that's kind of you know uh. some people you know they go to prison because of mental health issues some people go to prison because of what they've learned in their life early on and they you know get addicted to be it substance be it crime be it whatever but again you know, individuals, if you sit down for 25 years, you know, or 15 years or whatever the time it is, cats do change. People do change. They change their whole life. So, you know, you have individuals be corrected. I just don't know, you know, what's the length of time you're supposed to hold a human. Yeah. I mean, I would say to somebody, I, I don't like to tell people what to think. I think people need to make up their own minds. Right. But I would, I would respectfully ask, listen to one of our stories and see what you connect with. Does it open up a little bit of compassion in your heart to think in a different way? Give us a chance <laughs> to right. uh, to give you the ingredients to maybe change your mind. And if you don't, I mean, uh, okay, that's fine. But give it give it the opportunity.
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I want to start in now on what you two listen to, because mm-hmm. I know you spend a lot of time making this podcast, mm-hmm. but I'm so interested in what you're listening to. Mm-hmm. And so, Erlan, I'm going to start with you. One show you recommended is called Wrongful Conviction. Mm-hmm. What's this show about? Wrongful Conviction, is a, that's another beast. Now, I understand what it's like doing time when you've committed a crime. Your conscience is like, okay, you got me. I have to serve my time. I'm going to you know, change my life, whatever the case may be. But when you have an individual in there that has not committed no crimes, you know, and they're sitting in there 10, 20, 30 years, you know, and and have to go through everything. And then one day you find out, oh, you were as innocent. My bad. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how those individuals can hold on. You know, that to Mm -hmm. me, that's that's a harder pill to swallow when you're actually innocent, but you're being persecuted like you actually did the crime. And no matter what people say, oh, you didn't do it, everybody's still looking at you like you're that person that did it because that's what you've been labeled as for the last few decades. I've co-hosted two of the episodes, and one of them was episode 300. So it goes to show you how many people are in the United States wrongfully convicted. And why do you think people should listen to it? I think they'll learn a lot. I think they will see themselves in that situation. You know, a lot of people may not think stuff like that happened until it happens to them. You know, so listening to individual stories, I mean, you will gain something, you know, how the system is or people perspective of the system. You know, like I said, a lot of people look at law and order and they look at all the cop shows on TV and they think that's the way it is. That's the way it happened. That's not it. You know, it's way deeper than that. We're going to hear a story now about a man named Kwame Ajamu, who was wrongfully convicted. But before we get into it, here's some context. In May of 1975, in front of a store in Cleveland, Ohio, two assailants robbed a man, splashed acid in his face, shot and killed him, and then fired into the store, injuring the co-owner. And a 12-year-old named Eddie Vernon was riding on the bus near the scene. He later bragged that he had seen three boys he knew commit the crime, Ricky Jackson and Ronnie and Wiley Bridgman. However, according to all the other people on the bus, they were too far away to even see the crime. But police ignored other more compelling leads and focused on Eddie's story. When he tried to back away from the story he told, they threatened to take his parents to prison if he didn't stick to the story. Eddie's false testimony at trial helped send all three young men to death row. Ronnie Bridgman has since changed his name to Kwame Ajamu. We'll hear him and his attorney, Terry Gilbert, speak with host Jason Flom. Here's wrongful conviction. So you're still really a kid. You're a teenager. And I'm sure you had dreams and aspirations like every other 17-year-old kid in the country. And I know Ricky Jackson and your brother Wiley had already both been through the military at this point. So what were your plans for the future? I tell people all the time that I want to be a cop. Wow. (laughs) I had... 
big aspirations and how do you say ideologies of how police worked and it was either going to be a cop or a fireman and then in 1975 on that terrible day may 19th 1975 when mr harold franks entered our neighborhood there in fair hill and cedar and lost both his liberty and his life and i became one of the suspects and then one of the accused and then one who was sentenced and convicted to die at just 17 years old. I had no understanding of how these people who I supported as a child growing up and who I wanted to emulate could do such a thing to me. And this particular crime, 59-year-old white guy named Harold Franks, who was a money order salesman, and when he left the neighborhood grocery store on Fairhill Road, he was confronted by two men demanding his briefcase. That's two, not three. When he resisted, they clubbed him in the head with a pipe and splashed acid in his face. One of the robbers then shot him twice in the chest and fired a shot through the glass front door of the store. Mr. Franks obviously died, and 58-year-old Ann Robinson, who was a co-owner of the store, was shot once in the neck but miraculously survived. And the two robbers fled with the briefcase. They got away with about $425. It's really sad when you think of that. That's so Life is so cheap. In this case, four lives were so cheap. The two robbers, they got into a green car, parked down the street, and escaped. Now, I'm going to ask a stupid question. Kwame, did any of you guys have a green car? No. My brother did own a black and white Plymouth Sabrine. They did find that green car. Somebody had it and everything in the yard, all that. Nothing came of it. And it sounds like a very organized type of a crime, like maybe even a professional criminal who knew that this money order guy was going to be there threw acid in his face. What would a 17-year-old kid who wants to be a cop be doing with acid? And I mean, and a gun. In this case, let us not forget, this case wasn't a complicated one. They had the green car. They had suspects. They also had Mrs. Robinson, right? Didn't Mrs. Robinson know you guys? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, yeah. Right, so here it is. She's just been shot, and she's the only one who actually saw the perpetrators. And we know eyewitness identification is unreliable, but not when you know the people. Right. Right? <laughs> so think about it. So why don't you fill the audience in on how these guys became the sole focus of these people who ultimately framed them for this crime? In addition to the climate that existed at the time, Specifically, what happened was a 12-year-old boy named Eddie Vernon, who was on a bus coming home from school at the time the shooting occurred. The bus was in some proximity to the store down about a block away. And when they got off the bus and they saw the commotion after the shooting, they started talking. And one kid says, well, I bet you I know who did it. And He referred to the nicknames of Ricky, Kwame, and and Wiley. So that stuck in this kid, Eddie Vernon's mind at 12 years old. Maybe he should tell the cops who he thinks might have done this horrific crime. Eddie Vernon, I've known him since he was a small kid. My brother went to school with one of his sisters, and we knew the family. Plus, he was a paper boy in the neighborhood. Anyway, on that particular day, May 19, 1975, myself and Ricky Jackson was just down the street at the other end of our street talking with a guy by the name of Lynn Garrett and his girlfriend. And we decided to walk around the corner to the store. Now, mind you, the store that we decided to go to is not the store in question of it. So in the way to the store, we stopped at, unbelievably, Edward Vernon's house. 
and his two sisters, Darlene and Susan, were sitting on the porch upstairs. And we began talking to them, and a car pulls up. Inside the car, of course, is their father, Eddie himself, and a young girl by the name of Rose Brown. So they open the window and tell us that, hey, it's a man up there at the store, shot. So boogity, boogity, boogie. We wait for the girls to come down, and we all go up to the store. Sure enough, Mr. Frank is laying on the ground, dead. Cops was everywhere, right? You know, uh, asking people who had seen this, who had seen that, if anybody seen it. Unbeknownst to any of us, young Edward Vernon, you know, raised his hand and said, I did, I did, you know, to which they took him in immediately. At this point, they were only looking for two assailants, not three. So they took Edward down to the police station without his parents to get a statement that was more faithful to the crime scene. And remember, like Terry said, Edward's part in this just started off as, I bet you I know who did it. They went and started feeding him more details of the crime, creating a narrative to the point when they pushed him to say, well, these are the guys that you saw commit this murder, which we know now was impossible because other people on the bus we interviewed to show that there was no way Eddie could have seen this from that position. So they take the kid in. He's 12 years old. They scare him. They manipulate him to sign a a statement. And about a few days later, they brought him back and they wanted him to look at a lineup. And he's told the police, well, I don't really know if they did it or not. And one of the detectives got upset and started pounding his fist into a table and threatened Eddie that if he did not sign the document pointing to these young men that they would arrest his parents. Of course, none of this was known back then. You know, later on, we would find out that his mother had ovarian cancer and was dying. And so, you know, you ask yourself, who would you choose? Guys in the neighborhood or your mother, you know? So he came out of that interrogation room and obviously he wanted to save what he thought was his mother from being put into prison for him. And so he went along with the details that had been written in. So May 25th, 1975, they've now heard what they wanted to hear, or they've forced Edward to say what they wanted to hear. And they're now ready to take this to the next level and go arrest kids Mm -hmm. who I believe they knew were innocent. They had the green car. They had suspects. Had they even wanted to do just a tiny bit of actual police work? They probably would have landed on the two guys who actually did this. The whole investigation took about a week. There were other suspects that were far more viable in terms of who did this crime. Suspects that were older, I think even had a green car, and that had committed other similar crimes that was not disclosed to the defense counsel before the trial. There were at least... Six other men who had been simultaneously picked up, arrested, and put into Cuyahoga County jail. But they ignored these other viable avenues and took the easy route with a coerced 12-year-old boy. And at that point, they they were only looking for two assailants. So their narrative only named Ricky and Wiley. But you, Kwame, were soon written into the story after the night that they scooped all three of you up. Again, this was May 25th, 1975. The three of you had been out that night together, and Ricky was sleeping over at your house when the cops busted his door down. And when they didn't find Ricky, 
They dragged his parents out onto the front lawn with guns to their heads. That's exactly what happened at my house. You know, I was sound asleep and I felt you know, something hit my foot. I looked up cops everywhere, guns pointed. But I didn't think about myself, my safety or none of that because I knew that my mother was in the next room. And my mother, all of my life, had suffered from heart trouble which is what she died from, a massive heart attack in 1990. But I just bolted past the cops and got into the room where my mother was at. There was more cops with guns, and, and I let them have it, man. I was saying everything to them, right? So the, the guy snatched me up, I'll never forget, you know. And he said, Sarge, what you want to do with this one? You know, this one. And he said, take him on down. We'll figure it out later. They had arrested me for obstructing police business. And on the way downtown was when they realized that I was 17. So they had to avert going to the county and go over to Juvenile. And it was only after that they wrote me into the story. We just heard a clip from Wrongful Conviction. It's hosted by Jason Flom. The show is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Co. Number 1. Nigel, returning to you now, we're going to hear a classic show, Everything is Alive, where host Ian Chillog interviews inanimate objects. <laughs> what do you think makes this podcast special? <laughs> okay. I, the Be premise, ready. Get ready. Yeah. She's going to break this I down. I'm really excited here. I need a seatbelt. Um, okay. Just the premise of it is delightfully ridiculous. He's going he's gonna to interview inanimate objects. And so what you, you know, I, I actually see this podcast's intentions to be in a way very similar to what Ear Hustle does. So it's taking a, an overlooked thing. In this case, it's an object. And it's digging into what makes it unique. And each story is funny and touching and sad and surprising. So it covers the range of emotions, which is something Ear Hustle always tries to do. It looks at the overlook, it focuses on detail, and it surprises you every time you hear it. And I have to say, for if you listen to it, one thing you've got to realize is that the interviews are improv. And so mm -hmm. there's no friggin' script. And I cannot believe the journey that an inanimate object, for example, a can of cola, can take you on. Um, I play this podcast for my students every semester um, to encourage them to think sensitively about the things that they touch every day, whether they're alive or not. I, I can't say enough about this podcast. Okay, so we're going to listen to a bit of it now. In this clip we're about to hear, we're going to meet a sock named Sal. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm Sal. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm an ankle sock. Okay. So it's basically uh, enough that you could see it if you're wearing a low shoe, but if you wear boots, it's I'm too short for a boots. And uh, feels like a funny question, but what color are you? I'm um, white. Okay. Red line. So that's like an athletic sock. Thank you. I wasn't. You know, it's fun that you say that because. Um, I was never used for athletics, so I sometimes get insecure calling myself an athletic sock. But uh, yeah, I'm technically an athletic sock. Oh my god! If the other, if the other socks in the package could hear that, they would laugh at that. You know, I was never used for athletics, but yeah, thank so you. you. Yeah. So you don't feel athletic? No, I'm a lazy sock. It's okay. And are you a uh, one size fits all or? No, I'm an eight to twelve. Okay. Yeah, I, one size fits all. Can I be honest? That's baloney. 
There's no sock that's actually one size fits all. It's the sock. The sock has to adjust to the person. Yeah, I mean, you think about the entire range of human feet, yeah. from from a baby to the world's largest man. Right, and that's not good when the sock is so stretched out. You're not actually who you are. So I could either fit you, or if I don't, that's fine. We're not meant to be together. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank goodness. I Peter's a ten, so I he's right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Peter was a ten, right in the middle, no stretch. Thank goodness, because I've heard horror stories. That's your guy. Is... Yeah, that's okay. that's my uh, yeah, that's my dude. He's a senior in high school, and he got me freshman year before he went in to school. I was in a twelve pack. And you mentioned your partner. Uh, yeah, Rebecca. Yeah, where, where is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's uh, I, she's uh, she went missing like uh, three months ago. Okay. Yeah, but I'm sure she's somewhere. You know. He's a mess, okay? His room is a disaster. So I'm sure, she, I mean, yeah, she's somewhere. She'll be back. Okay, okay. Well, tell me about your life together. I mean, she's so, fu- you know what's so fun about having another sock? Like, we both go in shoes all day long, and we get to live our day, and then when we leave the shoes, we come home and we get to talk about what we both experienced. Yeah. So I know that, I know that like people text all day long. Right, so they get to like talk about their days. We don't get to do that. So when we get home, we had so much to share with each other. Yeah, it was amazing. We'd experience the same thing, but slightly different. Right? We would come home, and usually we get thrown on the floor, which is a beautiful place. You look at the ceiling. He has a fan. It spins. We just stare at the fan, and we go. Sounded like those chicken nuggets were good at lunch today. And we'd sit there. You ever talk to somebody and the conversation is nothing but it could go forever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it was. If you ask me, if someone wrote down what we said, they would say, this is nonsense. But if someone felt what we said, they would say, that's beautiful. Sal, do you, or did you and Rebecca, did you get to meet other socks? Oh, yeah. It's a no-shoes household. Everyone in the family's walking around in socks. So I've spent so much time. I mean, a no-shoes household, a Thanksgiving dinner is fun on top of the table. It's a blast underneath, okay? Oh, my goodness. You, I got to meet socks from all over the world. Do you know uh, Argyle? Sure. Oh, my. Now, that's the, the, an Argyle sock. You listen. You don't talk when you're around an Argyle sock, Okay. You listen to what they have to say. And I tried to tell my friends when I got back to the draw about what the Argyle sock said, but I've screwed that up. You know what I'm saying? But I listened to this Argyle sock. Oh, my goodness. It was truly amazing. And then you meet some stupid socks. I shouldn't call them stupid. Festive, we'll say. These socks come out once a year. They think it's their day. Mm-hmm. They've never met an ankle or tube sock, you know? Yeah. And no one's more annoying and a Santa Claus socks with a couple of those jingle bells on the side of the ankles. Right. You shut the heck up, okay? I don't need you talking under the table. They think it's their day. But listen to me, once a year you come out, and if you come out any other day besides Christmas, (laughs) you look like a fool, okay? But they they usually take the conversation. That's why I said the thing about having to listen. Because I know my place as as an ankle sock. No, I'm nothing special. I'm a working sock. Yeah, but you you can be at home any day of the year, you know. Exactly. People think um, people remember special moments. I remember the day in and day out. That's what I get to experience. That's what makes a life. 
not the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, what makes a life is is what you do consistently every day. Yeah. And that's what I would get to be a part of. I believe that. I believe that. I think when you, at least when I think about my relationship with my wife, the story of that isn't our anniversary dinners or our wedding. You know, yeah. it's grocery shopping and it's going for a walk. I remember know? the first time we watched Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, it was so good. I didn't get to watch the other two, but my, a couple other tube socks saw them. And you should have heard us in the drawer talking about it. This last crusade one sounds amazing. It is. Yeah. Oh, no, don't do that to me. OK. Oh, God. I saw um, the Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? now that's a movie. And they have an ottoman. And this ottoman is a class act, right? Fantastic. But the best part about the ottoman, they're sitting feet up. I'm looking right at the television. You're closest when they're using an ottoman. Yes. Yeah. I love me an ottoman. I'm, I've watched so many hours of sports, of movie. The Real Housewives, I don't want to talk about that, but oh, God, we watched so Rebecca loved The Real Housewives, okay? We would watch hours and hours. She liked the New Jersey one. She thought it was funny, whatever. But um, I, I'll tell you this. We watched so many hours of TV. It was so beautiful. Would you talk through it, you and Rebecca? Or? <laughs> she talked the whole freaking time. <laughs> she would talk, and I, I would go, I'm focusing, I'm listening. And at a certain point... I'm sorry. Um, at a certain point, um, I hear the TV from the draw sometimes. I, m- I miss hearing her talk. Mm-hmm. She's coming. It would throw me out if she wasn't coming back, you know? Yeah. There's no reason to keep an ankle sock if the other one's not there. There's zero reason for them to keep me if she's not there. She's there. So there's there's something I want to talk to you about. Okay. Um, and I think there's kind of a stigma about this, um, which is socks and sandals. Oh, come on. No. People get over themselves. Get a, socks and sandals are ideal. That's how socks originally were worn. The first sock was in ancient Egypt. They would wear socks with sandals. So don't you dare. That's our history. So you're saying that the first ever sock yes. was a sock and sandal sock. That was our original purpose. And then they started hiding us. They started putting us in shoes. Originally, we were free. We were in the sandals. The shoe was seeing the world. We were seeing the world. Ugh. Wow. What do you think happened? Why did it become this thing? I think shoes got cooler and socks stayed the same. Yeah. Have you have you been out as socks and sandals? <sighs> One time. One. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it was a good day. So the best part, Rebecca was right next to me. And we could talk the whole time. We weren't muffled by shoes. I heard her screaming, can you believe this? I go, no, no, no. We saw grass? That's green. That's grass is beautiful. Yes. I wish you wore me out more like that, you know? From PRX and Radiotopia, that was Everything is Alive. It's hosted by Ian Chillog, who produces the show along with Jennifer Mills. In that clip, Sal the Sock was played by Sebastian Connelly. 
I listened to an episode once about a stool that made me cry. And I was like, what is this show that, why am I, yeah, it's remarkable. Okay, now talk about something that gives you a new perspective. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. I hate when I see people wearing socks with sandals. But now (laughs) listening to that, I'm like, okay, the socks love it. Now I've got to reevaluate my opinion on socks and sandals. Mm -hmm. Shifting everything. Shifting everything. Exactly. So, Nigel, Erlon, we're nearing the end of our time together, unfortunately. Before you go, I want to know, what can we look forward to in the new season? What's coming up? Mm, so, Nigel, I'll let you start off since this was <laughs> the first one was your, you know, one of your uh, favorites. Yeah. So, more women's stories. There'll be a handful of stories this season from the California Institution for Women and also uh, from... From the uh, Central California Women's Facility, CCWF. Yep which we're very excited about. Um, we are hitting our 100th episode yes. at the end. Of, at the Erlon end of figured the, this out number-wise. Yes. At the end of our season, season 12, or we will have 100 episodes. Mm-hmm. So Amazing. We're going to do a little something special. Yeah, we're doing something special for that one. Um, we've got a story about, uh, well, we have a new crew inside San Quentin, a new group of guys that are working with us. And so we have a really fun episode that we're thinking of as like a magazine where all of our new producers inside are producing a short story about it's about his aspect of life in prison. And so it'll be, yeah, like right. a, as I magazine. said, a magazine. And we've never done that before. So we're going to have lots of new voices um, from inside San Quentin, which we're very excited about. Yes, definitely. Um, wow. And continuing to um, hopefully put ear hustle in every prison you ever hear about. Even in Canada. Even in, well, Canada. Yes, we, we was number please one. do. We was number one in Canada before we was in America. Oh, that's true. We was number one in yeah, Canada. Yeah, that's how, I mean, I think that's how I started listening to you because it was always trending. So um, there's lots to look forward to. I'm I'm so happy to have had some time to talk with you both. And I really appreciate the work that you've done on this show. It's, Thank yeah, you. it's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thank great you. to meet you. It was very fun. That was Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods, the hosts of Ear Hustle. Their latest season launched on September 6th, and they release new episodes every other Wednesday. If you'd like to check out anything we played on the show today, you can head to our website, cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. There'll be links and more information about each and everything that you heard today. And if you have any recommendations for us, get in touch. You can send an email to podcast playlist at cbc.ca or you can find us on Facebook at CBC Podcast Playlist. We'd love to hear from you. Podcast playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli, and Kayla Buys with technical support from Lauda Antonelli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Take care. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.